Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 531 for March 31st, 2018. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. We're back this week with another episode of Programming by Stealth with Bart Bouchatz. I believe this is installment 52. And uh, Bart, I just want to say welcome back from spring break. Woohoo! Yay, did you have fun? I did. I did. It was... Uh, you know, I felt kind of bad, a little bit bad that I was off gallivanting around the world and uh, you and Alistair were holding down the fort for me. But people ask me, what is it like to go on vacation when you're retired? Well, it's a vacation to not create the podcast. I got news for you because it's a lot of work. Are you particularly less busy now that you don't have work to go to as such? I don't get the impression that you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs much. I don't quite understand it. When you when you get retired, you you tend to get incredibly inefficient. So you used to be able to get a lot of stuff done. I don't even hardly wash my car anymore. My car's filthy right now. It's I, but you used to love that. that oh was yeah. your, the, that was a thing. I, I think part of it is I added a lot of exercise. So like ninety minutes a day, I'm exercising, and then there's getting ready and going to exercise and stuff. So a good couple hours a day are are wasted there or expended wasted. there. Wasted. <laughs> yeah. Actually, here's a question: Do you use that time to listen to podcasts? Oh sure, yeah, yeah. So otherwise, right. I would have no podcast because I don't drive anywhere either. Oh, of course, the commute is gone. So yeah. right, right, right. I'm sure you're so sad not to be spending hours of every day stuck in LA traffic. Exactly, exactly. Well, this isn't uh, my summer vacation episode, but I'm going to sneak in a topic before I let you get started here. And uh, okay. to the audience, uh, we got a fantastic letter this week from uh, a gentleman named Will, also known as Beju in uh, his Twitter handle. You guys may have remembered him from years ago. He used to converse with us a lot, and he uh, disappeared for a while, went off, went to college, and is now in grad school. And it turns out he's been listening to Programming by Stealth all this time, which is is pretty cool to know. Um, Yeah, but uh, even more importantly, uh, I want to just read you word for word what he wrote in his letter, because it's absolutely fantastic what he said to us. He said, in recent episodes, Allison has been audibly frustrated about objects. I noticed a disconnect in Allison's understanding of objects that I think is causing all of this. I wrote up a short explanation, at least it was short when I started, that I think will close the gap. I attached it as an HTML document complete with imperfect syntax highlighting and tiny font to make you feel at home. I think that was a dig on you. I'm not sure. I think it's a dig on, on BarkB.ie's <laughs> continuing um presence in the 1990s (laughs) anyway he goes i thought that was hilarious he goes on to say it's written in a conversational style talking directly to allison i start with restating things that i think you allison are already comfortable with and take a series of small steps each with some code examples that you can use to prove that i'm telling the truth until i arrive at the link that allison's missing i think that first of all that letter is fantastic i love that he's still listening the document itself is really really good so um i'm not going to completely spoil it here but i've taken it and uh formatted it with correct syntax highlighting and actually it doesn't have any <laughs> syntax highlighting but it looks like code anyway and uh, uh a nice font and it's over on podfeet.com uh bart you're going to sneak it retroactively i think into one of the episodes uh show notes for your site I'm going to find the right place to, to plug it in. Um, I, I, I'm convinced we, we did a sort of a revision episode on objects where we had a discussion about the fact that revision means something else in America. Right. That would and be that seems place. to be the place to put it. So I need to find where that is and then put it there. Okay. So it'll also be linked in the in the uh, podcast episode on podfeet.com for this one. And if you look under tutorials, if you just do a search there for uh, objects or JavaScript or will, you'll, uh, you should be able to find it over there. But um, I wanted to go through a little bit of why I thought this was really, really good. There isn't anything in his explanation, I don't think, that Bart has never said. Uh, but... Provably so, Alison, because as a good grad student, Will actually references everything. <laughs> In PBS 51 at this point, yeah. he. Uh, so, But the thing is that he took these pieces that have been given to me over the course of a couple of years now, and he put them all together in one cohesive story with, like he says, these small steps from something he knows I believe to be true. And what he's, what he's getting down to is the, where every time you say, but Allison, it's an object. And I said, yes, an object is everything that's not a Boolean, a string or a number. And then we go back and forth and back and forth. And he, he walks me through explaining uh, plain objects to start with and key value pairs and how you make them with squiggly brown 
brackets and uh, and how to get things in and out of them. And then um, he goes into classes as objects and proves that they're key value pairs. He actually uses new cow. Uh, he tells me to pull out, uh, I forget which PBS that was, but he brings up the farm. And so he has me do some key value par- pairs. Uh, he actually works boogers into one of the things. So I know that proves that he's really been listening. Uh, and uh, he reminds me that uh, parent- two parentheses, you know, invokes the function. And um, he even gets into why you can't pull values from an array with the dot syntax. And I'm not sure we ever actually said that. But the problem is that the key in a, if I get this right, tell me if I'm wrong, the key mm-hmm. in the key value pair in an array is a number and a number, mm-hmm. a leading number is not a valid variable name. Therefore, yep. you can't start with, you can't actually pull it with the dot syntax. Yes. So yeah. I, I thought that was really, really cool. Um, and then he even proved one of the things I was, I was uh, badgering Bart about was him saying that a function is key value pairs and you couldn't prove it, but he proved it with um, my function dot name or, or he, he created a function called my funk and uh, he had us type in my funk dot name and it gave the name of the function and my funk dot length. That was a, that was another, uh, another argument. So or that gave you the length of the number of arguments. So it was, mm-hmm. it was really, really good. The whole thing, I reread it yesterday and I just like, I, I'm not lost at any point in it. And that's a miracle in and of itself. And I'm certain to wish we were stuck on JavaScript for a bit longer. <laughs> well, yeah, I was, I was a little bit disappointed going, okay, now I get it. Let's do something. <laughs> Only I've just gone and said, oh, we're starting a whole new tangent because I thought we needed a break, which we kind of do, to be honest. I think so. So, yeah, it is. So, you know, we're going somewhere fun and we will get the JavaScript back into it in a bit. But, yeah, we haven't. It's been like the best part of a year where we've been almost all JavaScript. So, yeah, I think we're due. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I just I just love this concept of it it taking a village to teach Alice to do JavaScript or to, to do programming by stealth. But it's a fun way to learn for me. Absolutely. And. Well, from well, something I learned in my university days is it, it is very difficult to learn anything from one person. It doesn't matter mm. whether that per it doesn't matter the you know whether it's a terrible lecture or a fantastic lecture. The reason you have tutorials given by a different person is because two points of view is always better than one, no matter how good either point of view is on its own. It's mm. always it's better to have two bad lecturers than one good lecturer. Yeah, yeah. And the only thing better than that is if you have to teach it yourself, right? Oh, there is n- there is absolutely positively no substitute for having to teach something in order for you to get your thoughts straight on something. Um I I know people like Alistair say, "Oh, I've learned, you know, I thought I, you know, I, I'm a programmer for years, but I keep learning stuff on programming myself." I've been programming for decades. I keep learning stuff writing these show notes. <laughs> because and 90% understanding of something is more than enough to use it 99% of the time. But to teach it, you cannot have those dangly bits because I know for a fact you will ask me exactly the question that falls into that hole in my knowledge. You are guaranteed to do so. Well, that's good. That's great. Again, I feel like I, uh, I provide value to the, uh, to the whole process because of that. I then. keep telling you you do and you keep disbelieving me. And listeners write in and tell us it's great. How many times? Just, just today we got an email from a listener saying... You know, I follow along with security bits, and every time I'm about to get lost, Alison asks exactly the question I was thinking. Uh, well, good. So, oh, was that letter only to me? I thought, no, you I, forwarded it to me. So you, I did? Can't have been only to me, because you forwarded it to me. So that. yeah. Well, that's good. I like it. I like it. Um, so I'm going to give you a lead in here. Uh, listener mm-hmm. Helma good friend Helma, has uh, gotten the task of redesigning a website where she can't use a content management system for various reasons or it's not oh, a no. good... Well, it's not a good way to do it because of the way this this current site is set, but the current site would make your eyes bleed. I mean, it is, you know, please give me my GeoCities back is what it says. Um, oh, oh, wow. Yeah, oh, it's 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 gruesome. I mean, it's it's truly truly, you know, can't be unseen bad. Uh, But so she's trying to program it up by from scratch. And I said, hey, you should try Bootstrap. And she said, yeah, but I don't know Bootstrap. So what are we going to talk about? Stay tuned. (laughs) Yeah, so we're now moving. So we're going to take a little break and we're going to move to Bootstrap. And Bootstrap is it's not a language. It's again, it's like jQuery. It is a collection of code other people have written for the purpose of saving you reinventing the wheel. 
So you absolutely, anything Bootstrap can do, you can do yourself. You can write the CSS yourself and absolutely anything Bootstrap can do, you can do without Bootstrap. The thing is, if you do it without Bootstrap, you're going to have to write thousands of lines of code. Mm. If you do it with Bootstrap, someone else has written all those lines of code and you basically include their code in the header section of your page and you just start using it. And so these are kind of platforms, right? And jQuery is the first example we've seen of this kind of a platform. There is nothing jQuery can do that you can't do with first principles JavaScript. Hmm. Thing is, it's way, way easier to do it with jQuery because they have written all of the functions in such a way as to make it do what it's supposed to do easily. And it's the same logic with Bootstrap, but Bootstrap isn't... Okay, there is a small amount of JavaScript in some of the advanced Bootstrap features because, well, we'll get to those in a few weeks' time. But ultimately, 99% of Bootstrap is CSS. Bootstrap is all about the giving you a foundation upon which to design your web page. So it doesn't really matter whether you're building a web app, whether you're doing a blog, whether you're doing a news site, whether you're doing a podcast. Certain things are just common to every single thing that shows up in a browser. And having someone having done all that work for you means that you get a head start. So Bootstrap is the perfect name for it, right? They've already done the first step and you can bootstrap your site on top of what they've done. Okay. So effectively, you put your site up by its bootstraps. <laughs> uh, so you're, instead of starting by having to dig a foundation and then build up, you just start building up. And you like to think about the problem to be solved. And it's one of the things I love about having listened to your, your stuff for years and years now. I find myself saying it in meetings in all walks of life, you know, in my professional life, but also in stuff I do for fun. Whenever a conversation goes all waffly, I like to go, whoa, stop. What's the problem to be solved? Uh. And the amount of times that turns a useless, pointless conversation into something useful is amazing to me. So it's one of <laughs> my know, favorite little guns to pull out. Yay. You know, stop. You know, What's actually, the problem to be solved? I actually remember the first time I ever used that. And it was it was so mind-blowing. It was, uh, I was working on a, uh, let's see, I, I, I worked for a, um, an international users group for a big piece of software. And we would do surveys at every, every one Mm -hmm. of these big events and we would hand out paper and then somebody would, you know, enter all the data and we would get the answer. And so they spent, we spent all this time thinking about, okay, you know what we do? We could set up terminals and we create this web interface. We do da 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 da. And I just said, what problem are we trying to solve? And we had never identified that there was any problem. I mean, there might be problems you could articulate, like, oh, mm-hmm. it takes a lot of time to transcribe them. It's a waste of energy, whatever. But we had never said that. And they told me many yeah. years later that they kept me on the board. I didn't do any work. Everybody else worked really hard. I didn't do any work. And they uh, and they said they kept me on that board just because I would always say that at the right time. It's immensely valuable. And yet so obvious, valuable. right? <laughs> Well, it's only obvious, like, you know, as we were saying on, on uh, the recording of Security Bits yesterday, you know, genius stuff is only obvious in hindsight. <laughs> right, right. So Bootstrap was written to solve three or four, depending, well, a number of problems. Among the problems solved by Bootstrap, uh, for, for all you Monty Python friends. Uh, so the first thing is that if you take raw HTML, it its presentation was designed literally in the last century. And in the last century, our termin- our, our screens had like 480 pixels by, <laughs> was it 480 by 640? Was it, what was, or was yeah, no, 640, 640 by, 640 640 by 480, wasn't it? 640 by 480, that's yeah. it. And so when you want to make text readable on a 640 by 480 screen, you do things very, very differently than if you want to make text readable on a 1080p display. Right. Very differently. And the HTML defaults in terms of even the really, really basic stuff like which font to use are not in tune with modern reality, but it's not just which font. It's things like the ratios between the different sizes of headers, the spacing between the lines, all of the stuff typography nerds drool over. Mm -hmm. It was all designed in a day when there were almost no pixels, then that's not today. So basically it's wrong. So if you just take an HTML document, it's not, it's not even easy on the eye to read. So 
the very, very basic thing that Bootstrap does is it just says, look, if you include the Bootstrap library, when you make a paragraph or a heading or a list, it will at least be typographically in keeping with best practices of the 21st century. Hmm. Okay. So that that is one of the things it does. It just says, look, let, let's bring the defaults up to the 21st century, our current understanding of what makes good typography. And this is based on years worth of science as well as just our our physical displays of change, right? Because people, you know, human computer interaction is, is an entire area of computer science. People have studied, is a serif font easier to read than a sans serif font? Turns out that sans serif is easier on a screen, serif is easier on a printed page. So a book should be serifed and a screen should be sans serifed. Okay, we know that now. But oh, that's you interesting. Tell that I, I always change my uh, book fonts to sans, sans serif. That's unusual. Now, the thing is, if you change the sans serif, what you get is a sort of a modern magazine-y look because it feels more modern. But in terms of if you had to read an encyclopedia, the serifs, assuming the font size is appropriate to your level of eyesight, of course, um, the the serif is, it gives our eyes the right cues. Hmm. Um, I I find it easier to read. Hey, look, do whatever works for you, right? If you're going to print something out, there's no point in saying, well, science says that the average human being prefers this. <laughs> well, do you, know, do, you know, do you know what doesn't exist? The average human being? <laughs> the average human being, because the average human being has one point something legs. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right. So anyway, a long way of saying draws a baseline underneath everything and says, okay, we've rethought about the defaults. Here is a new set of defaults in keeping with modern best practices. So that's the first problem it solves. Um, the second thing it solves is that HT, one of HTML's biggest shortcomings is its inability to do layout, right? There is no HTML tag to create a column of text. There is no HTML tag to create a newspaper-style multiple-column layout, right? We can do it with CSS, but there are no HTML tags to do it. And doing it manually with CSS, as we discovered, is quite cumbersome. So it would be nice if someone did the heavy lifting and provided us with a few simple-to-use CSS classes for simply saying, see this here, turn this into a column that's half the width of the page, please. Okay. And that is a problem that um, Bootstrap solves immensely well. So when it comes to laying things out, I want this next to this. I want this over here. I want that on top of that. As I resize the page, I want this to flow this way. I want that to flow that way. All that stuff is bootstraps. That's probably its strongest point, actually, because that was the most annoying pain point that bootstrap was designed to solve. And so it sort of solved that first and then it did all the other stuff. Okay. Uh, The next problem it solves is... um, HTML, again, you can do it with CSS, but HTML out of the box has no support for responsive design. You cannot use an HTML tag to say, on a mobile screen, do this, on a laptop screen, do this, on a tablet, do that. There are no HTML tags to do it. You can do it with CSS. It's not something we've looked at, um, mainly because I knew we were going to be using Bootstrap. Yeah, so Um, why do that if somebody's figured it out? Right. So basically, in CSS, you can wrap your CSS statements in something called a media tag, which basically says these CSS statements only apply if the screen is less than so many pixels across. And then you write a whole separate piece of CSS and wrap it in a different media tag that says, and these rules only apply if it's more than such and such. Uh, But Bootstrap has done all of that for you. So basically, Bootstrap isn't one set of CSS classes. It is, in fact, many sets of CSS classes, and they behave differently depending on how many pixels are on the screen, and they're using the CSS functionality to do that. It's really cumbersome and clunky, but hey, they've done all that, so we don't have to. That's cool. Remember the old days when you had to design a web page even for, well, this person's on uh, Firefox and this person's on IE and... And uh, yes. you had to figure out what kind of device they were on. And ugh. Alison, I remember when you used to have to, in your CSS, intentionally include a absolutely garbage-looking line of code, which had the effect of crashing Internet Explorer's parser, which meant that any statements you put after that line would be ignored by IE. Okay. And so you'd basically put all of the IE code, and then you would put this line, and then you would put the Netscape code for CSS. <laughs> And basically, IE would do everything one way and then crash, effectively. It wouldn't crash in a visible way to the user. It would just stop reading any further. And 
You know the way I said that the most recent statement is what counts in CSS? So Firefox, or sorry, yeah, Firefox, it wasn't Firefox, it was Mozilla. So Netscape would see all of the wrong stuff, not have a problem with the line that breaks IE, and then see all of the right stuff and do it that way. I mean, it was oh, horrible, horrible. And, as and your user, JavaScript... And as a user, I remember being on the other side, uh, installing extensions that would say... No, no, no. It's okay. I'm IE. Really, just let me Pretend, in anyway. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. people would put code in that said, "No, you have to use IE," and it wouldn't be true. And then in JavaScript, it was it was terrible because if you tried to use it on the browser string, you could end up going wrong. So people found all of these rules like if document dot all. That was the way of detecting IE. It had document dot all, and uh, Netscape didn't. So the amount of times I wrote if document dot all. And that's why jQuery came into being, actually, is to stop all that kind of nonsense. Pretty soon uh, we're going to anyway, start yeah. saying, back in my day. Back in my day, there was a marquee tag and it sucked. <laughs> we liked that it. Is true. Uh, okay. So, okay, so we're on three problems, right? So the default styles have been brought up to the modern best standards or best practices. That's the word I was looking for. They're not standards, they're practices. Mm-hmm. Um. We have nice support for layouts, nice support for responsive design. And then the last thing we have is that there are no HTML tags for certain elements that are very, very common to pages, right? It is very common to have uh, modal dialogues these days where the the whole page is grayed out apart from one little box that needs your attention right now. That's a modal dialogue that doesn't exist in native HTML. I've always yes, wondered what the modal. word modal meant. This is like where you say, okay, it's going to make you fill in your name. Once you do that, now you're allowed to put in your address. Once you do that, you're allowed to put in your credit card. Yes. Yes. So a modal dialogue is one that takes over. It literally, it stops you doing anything else. It forces you to deal with it and then it dismisses and then you can carry on. Uh, so Bootstrap provides modal dialogues. Um, there's no default tag for giving an alert message to users. Um, so there's elements for that built into Bootstrap. Uh, there's no native HTML for a carousel, which is a very, very popular element on lots of people's websites these days. Mm, so the right. carousel is built into Bootstrap. And when you come into those advanced features like the carousel, that's when Bootstrap starts to need JavaScript. So the basics of Bootstrap is 100% CSS, but the advanced Bootstrap features have a JavaScript file. So today we're going to only be including a CSS file, but in the future we'll be including a CSS file and a JavaScript file. Okay. So they're the four things it does. So it creates some stuff that doesn't exist in HTML. It makes default HTML behave better. And it gives us layout and it gives us responsive design, which is not a bad set of problems. If it only solved one of those, it would be useful. The fact that it solves all four makes it very useful. And that is why it's such a nice platform to build on, because you really are starting off with so much work done for you that you can get stuck straight into developing your app, doing the things that are unique to the problem you want to solve. So it lets you be creative um, instead of having to carve everything out of stone each time? Exactly. So I I use Bootstrap a lot in with my work hat on because it means that I am immediately, my literally from the first moment I'm working on a new project, I am straight into solving the problem I was asked to solve, not mm-hmm. doing a whole bunch of housekeeping work to get to the point where I can start. And before I started using Bootstrap, there was always this sort of housekeeping to get everything set up and to make the font be decent and to, you know, all of this monotonous stuff <laughs> that I used to have to do to get to zero. And then I could start working on the project with Bootstrap. I can just go straight. I'm at zero straight away and I could just get stuck into my actual problem. It's very rewarding to be able to do that. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to give a quick little analogy. I heard uh, Copernicus, I think it was, used to spend a lot mm-hmm. of time grinding lenses before he could make observations. Right. Well, because Copernicus well, there was spending no one to the time the doing that. For him, right? Yeah, yeah. But all that time he spent doing that was just, you know, essentially waste, right? Yeah, because he could, I mean, he, he only solved the mystery of the shape of the solar system. Just imagine what he could have done if, if he'd had a free time to do everything else. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um. So, okay, so think of Bootstrap like we think of jQuery, right? It is... It, 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 it's an API written by someone else. It's a bunch of code written by someone else that we can use. But instead of it being JavaScript code, it is mostly CSS with a little bit of JavaScript thrown in. And as it happens, when we get to the JavaScript part of Bootstrap, uh, Bootstrap requires jQuery. So Bootstrap hmm. actually builds on jQuery. So again, the Bootstrap guys didn't reinvent the wheel. They were like, well, jQuery already exists, so why don't we use their wheel? <laughs> And they also use a second wheel that we haven't seen before called popper.js, which is a nice, it's, a, it's one of those 
jQuery does many things very well. Popper does one thing very well. It allows tooltips to appear where the mouse is on the page, which is, again, something that HTML doesn't do by default. And so whenever Bootstrap needs to do something that involves something appearing next to your mouse, it just uses popper.js instead of reinventing the wheel. Huh. So as we come along, we're going to discover that Bootstrap has two requirements itself, which doesn't count, jQuery and popper.js. But for today, it's just CSS. Okay. So in order to use Bootstrap, there are three prerequisites. One, Bootstrap absolutely requires HTML5. And it explicitly requires that you start your HTML page with the official standards compliant HTML5 doc type. That is the only thing I've ever taught you, so no problem for us. Okay. But you can't use Bootstrap 4 with, with the older versions of HTML. Bootstrap 4 requires HTML5. Bootstrap 3 will work with the older stuff, but we're not going there. We're still not going back in time. So Bootstrap 4 is the latest one. Bootstrap 4 is the absolute latest. It came out of beta only a few months ago. Oh. Oh, good. I remember so that was one of the I've been things that was holding it. off, right? Well, and yeah. holding off on your website, right? Exactly. Uh, now, I did actually, I've actually used the alpha versions of Bootstrap for production code because actually those alphas were very stable. Okay. But I didn't tell people I was doing that. I just did it. Um, <laughs> anyway, so that's, that's the first prerequisite. You have to use HTML5. No problem for us. The second one is a copy and paste job. There is a meta tag um, for telling modern devices how they should do how they should do um, responsive design. I, I think Apple created this tag. It's called the viewport meta tag, and it just tells tablets and stuff what you want them to do. Hmm. And it really is just copy and it's a copy paste job, right? So. Width equals device width, initial scale equals one, shrink to fit equals no. You know, uh, when you look at how mobile Safari works, you can see where the, what those things might mean. Okay. And so you're just basically saying, if you're a mobile browser, here's how I'd like you to behave. So whatever and width just the device is, up. make that the width. Don't shrink yeah. it to fit because they aren't going to be able to read it. Yep. But initial scale one. So those three things can't are often not, in concert with each other, right? Well, no. So device width equals device with an initial scale equal one or two ways of saying the same thing. I would imagine it's because Chrome does it one way and Safari does it another way or something yeah, along those lines. Yeah, but you throw lines. in shrink to fit. No. Well, if it's That's wider. the same thing, a scale one. No, 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 no. If, if something is wider than the width, then if you make it the width of the device, then it's no longer one-to-one. -one. Okay, but we're talking about the viewport. We're not talking about the content. Okay, then you got to tell us what viewport is. Okay, so... We think of a web page as being a certain amount of pixels across, but a, a, the mobile browsers added an abstraction where they effectively, they say, well, we have a viewport. So what we can do is we can say, we only have 400 pixels, but we pretend it's 800. So the viewport is 800. Okay. But there's actually only 400 there on the screen. And so the viewport gives you this concept of like a magnifying glass in front of the real web page. That's your viewport. And so what you're basically saying here is don't do that. De width equals device width. No magnifying. Initial scale equals one. No magnifying. Shrink to fit equals no. No magnifying. It's, it, it's, what it's basically saying is don't do any of that weirdo stuff to make a desktop page fit on a mobile screen. This web page is going to take care of all of that kind of stuff for you because Bootstrap is responsive. So basically, if if the mobile browser is trying to is it tells the mobile browser, don't assume this is a desktop site that you need to do fancy stuff to. Leave it to me, the web page. I'll do all the fancy stuff. Is hmm. kind of what it boils down to. So no, no, no tricking about it. a pixel is a pixel. But actually, yeah, the whole thing sums up as a pixel is a pixel. Don't try to be clever. Okay. Don't try to use your 400 actual pixels to pretend to be 800 pretend pixels. No, no. If you have 400 pixels, tell me you have 400 pixels and I'll deal with it. Okay. All right. Yeah, it, it's an abstraction. It's a, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. So don't abstract, which is good. It's simpler that way. Yeah. And then the last thing we do is we actually suck in the Bootstrap CSS, which is basically, so you can, you can get it from their CDN or you can actually download it and host your own copy. But in this case, we're just going to use the CDN. And so the CDN is just a copy and paste job from the Bootstrap website, which is getbootstrap.com, by the way. I don't think I've said it. It's linked in the show notes, but I haven't said it yet. It's getbootstrap.com. 
And you just copy and paste it in. So it's just a link rel equals style sheet href equals blah, 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 blah. Right, copy, paste. And that's, that's it. So when you put those three statements together, you get a little snippet of HTML that I've included in the show notes as your nice copy-paste starting point. So it is just the HTML5 doc type, the HTML tag head, our standard car set equals UTF-8 that we've been using since we start, since our first HTML page way, 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 way back. And then we have the bootstrap stuff. So meta name equals uport, copy-paste, link rel equals style sheet, copy-paste, and all the rest is just like it was before. Okay. So really, it's just those line seven and line eight. All the rest is as we've done it before, which is great. So we should make a text expander snippet on that? Yeah, well, I may already have such a thing. (laughs) The one thing I haven't figured out how to do is if I allow text expander to talk to my my text editors, it's Mm -hmm. often doing other things like it seems to autocorrect things that I don't want it to do. It's all about picking a delimiter that will never get confused with something. I have spent years trying to find the perfect delimiter. Have you picked At one? the moment, I'm using stuff ending in backtick. Oh, that's an interesting idea. And so far, that has had no false positives for me. Because when okay. you're programming, sometimes you start things with a backtick, but you rarely end things with a backtick. Yeah, but if... Um, that would mean that... Well, what my problem is, things I wrote for another use end up glopping into my text editor. Yeah, so I, yeah, editor. yeah, so that's what I mean. I end everything. All of my snippets end in a backtick. Okay, but let, so in my case, all my snippets end in semicolons because I don't know what they're for in real life. So I never use semicolons. But if that comes up, that comes up at the end of lines in code now, right? Exactly. So before you were a programmer, ending in semicolon was fantastic because semicolons had no function in your life. Unfortunately, now that you are a programmer, semicolons have a lot of function in your it's life. It's okay that I only have about 4,000 snippets that I use every day. So okay. I used to use star and then I started to write in markdown and then I had to redo all of my snippets to use backtick. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's taken me a while to find the perfect delimiter and so far backtick is working for me. I haven't had any false positives yet, but it took a lot of muscle memory to start using backtick. Yeah. That's, anyway, that's rough. That's, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so there is another caveat to come before we're ready to start writing our um, bootstrap code. So bootstrap changes defaults, right? That's one of the things I said it does, right? And some of those default changings are very superficial stuff, like the font is not a serif font, it's a sans serif font. The spacings are more in keeping with the, the guidelines for typography. The ratios of sizes are more in keeping with the guidelines for typography. But one thing is not at all in that category. One thing changes very, very much. So way, way, way back in installment seven, that's that's going back a bit. Let me see the date on that out of pure curiosity. January 21st, 2016. Wow. God, we've been at this a while. <laughs> so way back in installment seven, we described the CSS box model. And that was a bit of a fudge on my part. Oh. Because it's not the CSS box model. It's the default CSS box model. Very mm-hmm. subtle shift in emphasis there. Yeah. Uh, well, now I got to tell you that if what we learned was the default, that means there are other ways. So I got to teach you the other way. And then I'm going to tell you that Bootstrap does it another way. <laughs> so you're going to, you've taught us something. You were lying. You're going to tell I wasn't us lying. It is the default, and it's been true. Okay. We, it has been true between installments 7 up to and including 51. Okay. But from 52 on, it is not true, but and then it's only because we're using Bootstrap. Okay, but then you're going to tell us uh, other ways that also exist, but then you're going to tell us ignore those ways, and now we're going to talk about the Bootstrap way? Well, ultimately, there's only three, one of which is used by no one, so we're going to mention its existence and carry on with life. Okay. And then there are two common ones. And there's a certain historical irony here, um, which we'll get to in a moment. Okay. What all of this boils down to is the definition of width and height. Height. Yes. I, I, yeah. I hate Sorry. Typing but, and saying that word because I always make a mess of it. Um, don't worry. It'll become so, a word soon. That's what always happens, right? That is true. Language evolves. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. I'll be right eventually. <laughs> um, so in 
in the in those evil early days we were just talking about a few minutes ago, there was not one box model. There was the one everyone used, and there was the one Microsoft used, or specifically the one used by IE versions less than or equal to six. Um, and the reason you had to do that horrible CSS hack I described, where you would write some code to make IE crash, was so that you could specify width the IE way and then re-specify the width the Netscape way. Because the definition of width was not consistent. So huh. if you scroll down to the diagram, what we learned was the default way of doing width. So we learned that the width refers to the content area. And if you have, let's say you take a paragraph and you say width equals 500 pixels, margin 10, border 2. The actual width of that paragraph is not 500, even though you said width 500. The actual width is 500 plus twice the padding plus twice the border. So why I don't get why that's so bad. I mean, that's just a way to do it, right? Right, but try laying stuff out. If you say this, this paragraph is half the width of the page and this paragraph is half the width of the page and I don't want them to touch each other, so I set a padding. Uh-huh. Now we have scroll bars. Oh, by definition. Yeah, that's a good point. By definition. It makes layouts an absolute pain in the backside. And the annoying thing is that Microsoft had it right. They were the only people to have it right. Every other browser did it the other did it the way I'm just describing. But Microsoft said, no, 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 no. The width include the width is everything to the edge of the border. To the outer edge of the border is what the width is. And then we just shrink the content area as appropriate to do with the margins, uh, sorry, to do with the padding and the border you set. So Microsoft said the width goes from the outer edge of the border to the other outer edge of the border. And everyone else said, no, 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 it goes from the edge of the content area to the other edge of the content area. And for CSS 1 and for CSS 2, the official standard was the Netscape way. And the Microsoft way was just considered quirks mode and was considered gone, deprecated, killed, destroyed. CSS 3 resurrected the Microsoft way from the dead. But now you have two different models. They can't both be true at the same time. Because width has to mean one thing or the other. It can't mean both simultaneously unless you have Schrodinger's browser. <laughs> and you randomly get one or the other, right? That, that would right. just be madness. So they invented a new CSS property that allows you to specify which universe you would like to live in. And you can do that on a per-element basis. So you can say this paragraph does things the IE way and this paragraph does things the Microsoft way. Huh. So, Or you can just say, and the default for the whole document is X. So the name of this property is box minus sizing or box dash sizing. Hmm. And the default way is called content box. So content dash box. So box minus sizing colon content dash box means do things the default way. The content area is what the width applies to. Then the next one is the one nobody uses, padding dash box. The width goes to the inner edge of the border. So borders are external to the width, but everything else is internal to the width. Okay. And then the last option is the old IE option, border dash box, which basically means that the width goes from the outside of the border to the other outside of the border, the way that every human being on the planet thinks is logical, sane, and reasonable. Hmm. And what Bootstrap does, one of the first lines of code inside that massive Bootstrap library is basically set the default box dash sizing on everything to border minus box. So border dash box is is the only has the margin outside of it. Only has the margin and margins are always outside. Everyone has a margin outside because margins collapse. If you have two paragraphs touching each other, they share a common margin. Oh, I forgot that. Really? So if yes. I say, we, yeah, we didn't talk I, about it, but I, I haven't, I haven't restated that in a very long time. Right? Years it hasn't ago. come up. So uh, you're saying that if I have a margin of five pixels on an image and a margin of five pixels on another image, and the two are side by side, there will only be five pixels between them. Yes, which is exactly oh. what you want. Well, because otherwise, not if you imagine putting them in a, well, if you imagine putting them in a row and not having the edges be too close to the to the border, imagine you have a border which contains three images. Mm-hmm. So you have a box with three images inside that if the margins didn't collapse, then the border around the edge would be half the width of the border between the images. So it would look wrong. 
But if they all collapse to be five pixels, oh, I see then they look saying. right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's why margins collapse. And so imagine you have a border on a, on a H1 that says every H1 should be followed by a 20 pixel gap. And the paragraphs tag says there should be a five pixel gap above me. If they added up and became 25 pixels, things would look really weird. Hmm. But if they collapse to become whatever is the biggest of the two, which is actually what they do, then after a H1, you get a 20 pixel gap. And then the next paragraph has, say, a five pixel gap below and a five pixel gap above. They collapse into a single five pixel gap and you get nicely spaced paragraphs. Hmm. So the border collapsing means that you do end up with sane typography. But it doesn't make sense when you say it in the abstract. It only makes sense when you start to build a web page. Yeah. And so because they collapse, they're never included in the width calculations. They are always external. Okay. So that's actually the most difficult. Uh, that's the only difficult concept I'm going to teach you today. Oh, they, that's, that's, that's a very, very important piece of So content, padding and border because... on the inside of the width and the height and margins on the outside. And it's always going to be, and that's border dash box. And Bootstrap 4 is always going to make your box sizing look like that. Correct. So as soon as you include you could Bootstrap, override it, but that's the default, right? You can. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you can, right? Because you can then on a prayer tag basis say div hash boogers. In other words, the div with the I boogers box dash sizing equals padding dash box if you want to be the weirdo or <laughs> content dash box if you want to do it the default way. Right. So you can override it if you have a higher specificity than the default and everything is more specific than the default. So yes, you can override it if you want to. I predict you will not be doing so. You know, I'm just going to be ordering and find a reason to do that, right? If you find a good reason to do it, I'm actually be curious. Okay. Because I'm not sure a good reason exists. Other than because I can. Which I argue is never a good reason. Anyway. So the next thing I want to talk to you a little bit about is the bootstrap documentation. Because I, being two and a bit years into this project, I hope it is a true statement that people are now getting on a stage where linking to documentation is something that you're now comfortable with me doing. Yeah. And if, if you're only a little bit uncomfortable, that's okay. This will be good practice. But really, the most important skill a developer needs to, if you'll excuse the pun, develop, <laughs> is the ability to read the fine manual, the ability to RTFM. Okay. So I'm going to be doing a lot less restating what's in the docs, because frankly, it's a waste of my time. Uh, most of the time, the people who write the documentation for Bootstrap are better at English than me. Bootstrap yeah. is not one of those projects where the people writing the English don't know what they're doing. Um, they actually have good docs. And the other thing I obviously will be linking to a lot is Microsoft Developer, or not Microsoft, the Mozilla Developer Network, because they just do really good docs as well. Um, so you'll notice that in the section of the show notes where I describe the CSS box models, I have a links section, and you're going to see a lot more of those. So the first link takes us to the box sizing docs on MDN, and the second link is to a nice article on a very fun website called CSS Tricks. And CSS Tricks is a great resource if you're trying to solve a problem that you're convinced someone else has solved before. <laughs> the chances are if it has been solved before, it's on CSS Tricks. Ah, okay. And if it's not exactly what you need, the chances are their description of how it hangs together will be what you need to get you over the hump. They're, they write really good articles. So with all of that said, let us have a look at the documentation. So if you go to getbootstrap.com and click on the documentation uh, button in the, um, in the main sort of menu bar across the top, mm -hmm. um, then you will see a sidebar. The sidebar is laid out in such a way that it maps to the four fundamental chunks or components or categories of thing bootstrap does so bootstrap has this the people who wrote bootstrap consider it to, to be broken into four parts the first part they call the layout engine or just layout and they're all of the css classes they have written to allow you to lay stuff out right so i want this to be four columns i want the first column to be twice the width of the second column all of that stuff is layout the next section they consider in their functionality is content, which is basically the new defaults for all of the existing HTML tags. So how should a bootstrap header look? That's part of content. How should a paragraph of text look in bootstrap? That's part of content. How should a table 
be done in Bootstrap. That's part of content. That's that's not intuitive to me. That content. It isn't. So say it again and just repeat it so that I can wrap okay. that. So if you're looking to find the Bootstrap way of doing something that exists as an HTML tag, so table is a tag that exists. Where do I go? Content. Headings are a tag that exists. I go to content. So the way I think of it is if, the, if, it's, if I'm trying to do something with a tag that's part of the HTML spec, then I want to go to the content section of the Bootstrap documentation. Like you said, it's not, I can't find a way to make that make sense. It just is. So tags and divs, all that kind of stuff, that's, uh, that's content. That's content. Okay. Yes, exactly. Now, divs are the one thing you won't find there because a div doesn't really mean anything, right? So oh, lists, right. Okay. headings, paragraphs, lists, tables. Okay. Right? There's a, there's a H, about, H1 about, like, tag, image there's tags? a P tag. Images, yes, absolutely. There's okay. an IMG tag, so that goes in there. Okay, so that's if it has a tag, it goes in there. Okay. If it's a piece of logical, if it's a logical atom that makes up a page that does not have its own tag, that goes into components. So a carousel is a thing, but it, there's no carousel tag in HTML. Okay. A modal dialogue is a thing, but there's no HTML tag modal. Okay. Right. So if it's a thing that Bootstrap invented, it goes into components. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if it's standard HTML, it's content. If it's something they've created, it's components. Okay. And then the last thing we have is called utilities. And that's, you could argue it as it's MISC, or you could argue that it's highly reusable content that saves you a lot of typing. So Either is, way is a good way of thinking so about it. So it's content? But not under content. It's not content. It, right, so the utilities apply to content and components. That's why they're different. So I'll give you an example to, to make utilities make sense. If you're going to have a, a whole, if you're going to have your whole web page make sense as a unit that flow, that doesn't look weird, you need to be very consistent in the ratios between paddings and between margins and things. And there's actual mathematical rules, so you have to have certain ratios, quote-unquote, look right. The human eye is weird. Like stuff like the golden ratio comes into all this kind of stuff. Uh -huh. And so you could read the books on typography and do the calculation yourself and then therefore know how many pixels you need. Or Bootstrap gives you five standard paddings called P1, P2, P3, and P4, and P5. P5 is the biggest, P1 is the smallest. So the utilities contain things like that. So you can just say P class equals P5 would be a paragraph with a very big margin. Or sorry, a very big paragraph. P class equals M5 will give you a very big margin. It's about, right. oh, okay. Right? So basically they have gone and created some standard margins and some standard paddings. Mm. And they also have some standard colors. Warning. Uh, there's warning, there's error, there's main, there's success, there's muted, and there's a few others. So they've created these standard colors, which you can just reference by a same name. So they've figured out color schemes and stuff. And so you can just basically say that you want text-primary or text-warning. So those are the utilities. Hmm. Okay. They're basically collections of pre-written CSS rules that will just make stuff more consistent. Hmm. Okay. Again, it's a, they've taken a bunch of work away from you, I'm and what you end up with is nice you start shortcuts. to go in and use these things because it's still yes, it will. It feels yes. real abstract right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, and I would hope the reason I'm telling you there's four parts is so that I can keep referring back to it, and then they can they can become cemented over time. And the, uh, the hope is that if you're ever kind of thinking, hang on a second, what's the logic here, that you can go back to this installment. And find out, ah, okay, so there's four parts. Oh, okay, now I get it. That's why this is under the utility section of the sidebar. Okay. You know what's irritating is this website changes the sidebar when you're in one of them. So you can't go from layout to content to components to utilities. As soon as you click on layout, components, and you... Oh, wait a minute. No, they scroll down. They expand. Oh, is that what, is that what it's doing? That's what's going on. So right now, wow. by default, introduction is expanded. So layout is scroll down, you get to layout. When you click on layout, wow. introduction collapses and layout expands. Well, I'm glad I asked because that's a lot more useful than I thought. I, I yep. couldn't see it because it was changing so dramatically. 
Okay. Yeah, and some of them are really small and some of them are really big. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it, I just thought it was a whole new set of galop on the left. I didn't even notice the other stuff was still there. Okay, good. If you go into, if you go into, if you go into components, you, you get, you'll sort of see like it's, you know, carousels, drop downs, Jumbotron. Jumbotron is cool. I love Jumbotron. For people who have written a site that's all about how to make things look better, I think they could have made that a little more obvious, but that's me. I would agree with you, which is why I actually, I don't think I've ever taken the time to do a screenshot of the jQuery documentation. But in this case, I did want to do a screenshot and basically tell you that the four things you want are components, utilities, content, and layout. Right. Those four parts of that sidebar will always have the answer. And once you start to think the way Bootstrap think, you'll even know which one has the answer. <laughs> good, good. Um... And as I say, we're going to meet these all in turn over the next few weeks. But that I did just want to set the stage and say that those four layout, content, component, and utilities, the whole philosophy of Bootstrap is broken into those four concepts, which is why the docs are broken into those four concepts, and why just everything about Bootstrap is sort of broken down into those four concepts. And you'll hear those words used. You know, use the margin utility. Okay, well, let's go to utilities and go to sizing. And then you get the margin stuff. So the last thing I want to do today, it just because we're, we're we're kind of we're setting we're just setting the stage today, and next we'll, we'll, we'll let our actors come on next week or next time. Our actors. The last thing we're going to want is a little playground to tinker around in initially. And when we did JavaScript, I wrote my own, and the main reason I wrote my own because there actually are some really nice fancy pants JavaScript playgrounds uh, that, that are free on the internet. But the thing is, they're all way more advanced than we were ready for, and they would have confused everyone. So I wrote my own that was really, really simplistic. Well, now at this stage of the game, I, I don't think that's the right thing to do anymore for me to write my own unless I really, really have to. So I found a free one online that it worked for me in my browser, and then you went and tried it on an iPad, and it turns out it's terrible on iOS. Yeah, yeah. The the so if you try to do this on iOS, you can type into it, but once you t hit run, you can never edit anything you've typed. So I had a typo in mind. I had to start over. I couldn't copy it and, and refresh and paste it back in. I couldn't do anything with it. So and it also didn't seem, ironically, it was not really a responsive design. It looked like I was on the desktop. So it, it all the targets were real small. It was uh, a little rough. So you might want to use a a, a real browser for it. Or, well, if you're on the iPad, there are, I believe, programming apps. Because at the end of the day, this is just JavaScript. This is just HTML and CSS for now. So you can just create a blank HTML page using the template above um, and use your favorite iOS-based code editor. I believe they exist. I just have never felt the desire to program on a small screen. Yeah, there's times I'm playing around in bed in the morning and it would be fun to go mess with it. Um, on, a, on the Mac, could we use Code Runner instead of this uh, yes. playground? Absolutely, yes. Okay. yes, absolutely. Or indeed, any text editor and any browser. Oh, okay, okay. Because at the end of the day, it's just HTML and CSS, right? The, okay. the only convenience of this playground is that they do the include bootstrap bit for you. Oh, but we already know how to do that. We do know how to do that. So the question is, do you want to spin up an editor or do you just want to go to a web page and copy and paste? I think different people will have a different um, preference. Yeah. And just do whatever works for you. I, I have I have no strong opinion. Okay. Um, however, the, I, I am, personally, I'm going to be using this playground, and it does have some nice features, as in I can, I can write code and save it as a linkable thing to share with people. That's kind of a nice thing about it. Um, so... It's not a language, but let's just do a hello world anyway. Right? I'm... This is not, I'm not going to explain everything, but just to give you a slight taste. So we're going to do our hello world as a so-called Jumbotron component. So that would be under the component section of the menu. Um, I would, I'm going to give my Jumbotron a margin that's sort of medium size. So that's the M-3. So that's the, the margin utility. So we have a component and a utility being used together there. So again, div class equals, right? Everything is going to be class equals because... Bootstrap is a collection of CSS classes. So class equals Jumbotron means use the Jumbotron component and M-3 means use the margin utility. H1, hello world. Then we have a P, class equals lead. That's a class that basically says this is the primary paragraph. It makes it a little bit more bigger. 
that's a terrible way of saying it. It makes it a little bit bigger than a normal paragraph if it's a lead paragraph. You know the way in a newspaper, the first paragraph is different? They call that the lead paragraph, so that's why they use that word here. And then I'm saying text minus muted means use the muted color. Welcome to Bootstrap 4. And then close off our div. And so if you paste that into the sandbox of your choice or you stick it into an HTML page using the template above, what you get is hello world inside a giant big sort of uber-sized header, which is what a jumbotron is. It's a really big header. Okay. And you'll see that the welcome to Bootstrap is in a muted text. Huh. Right, so it does what we asked it to do. Not very okay. exciting, right? It is hello world at the end of the day. But nonetheless, we have used bits of Bootstrap here. So if you're playing along with the sandbox, I have a screenshot basically telling you your HTML goes here, the run button is here, and the preview will go there. That's, you know, because that's all there is to it. I like it. Now, we haven't learned about Bootstrap's layout functionality yet. So for now... Actually, I, I I, just... I'm going to break in for just a second. Something okay. you did uh, in the formatting of this actually shows me a way around one of the problems I had with the uh, the the playground. One of the problems with the playground is that as you type, uh, the, there's an ad that sits on top of your code, and so mm -hmm. I was I was typing and it was going under it. But you've actually formatted your your window tall and narrow, and I think that mm -hmm. would get you around it because your ad is down in the bottom right. Mine was up at the top because I had it really wide. Ah, so the, the okay. ad slid up to the top, which made it, I mean, it was like third line down. I couldn't read what I was typing. So, uh -huh. Okay, that explains why I didn't get cranky at it like you did. <laughs> yeah. Quite yeah, you're right. Either. In my case, the ad is, is out of my way. Yeah. Um, so we haven't learned about bootstrap layouts yet. We will do it at some stage, but we haven't yet. So for now, if you're going to use that playground, I, in order not to have what you're doing literally splattered to the edge of the screen, you need to put a container around it. So you can just copy and paste the code snippet here, which is basically div class equals container minus fluid space MT dash three div class equals row div call dash 12. Your code goes here, right? We will understand what each of those three divs mean a few weeks from now because okay. they, they have meaning. But for now, this is just a dumb copy-paste to get your stuff not to stick to the edge of the screen. Okay. And to make that easier, I've created a direct link that gives you a playground with that code already inserted for you. So if you, if you open bootplea.com boot, boot with that link, you'll just have a playground with that snippet of code already inserted for you, and then you can just start using it. Okay. So how do can we save our stuff from there or no? You can if you create an account with them. You can you can click the fork button and turn it into something of your own. Ah, uh, okay. And in fact, you can save it even as anonymous, and it'll get its own ID. So if you just click the fork button, and then you can just say save, and it will say created by anonymous, oh. and that will work fine. Or you can create yourself an account. Okay. For free. All right. Now, this is our first installment, so I'm taking it a bit easy on you, but that does not mean I'm giving you zero homework. <laughs> Just not evil homework. Uh, and the homework I'm giving you now is kind of something we're going to take with us for quite a few weeks. So we're going to create a recipe page. And a recipe page benefits from having nice layouts and things, so it's a good example to use. Uh, so we're going to start off by just creating the raw HTML5 for a recipe of your choice. So it can be any dish or drink that you find, you know, a recipe for your favorite gin and tonic, your favorite martini, your favorite bolognese, whatever. I really don't care. The point isn't what it is. Although, to be honest, if you cook good food, I kind of want to see a recipe, but just because I might want to cook it. Mine's how um, I make popcorn. Actually, I do want to see that because you make, you're very fond of your popcorn and have much experience, whereas I tend to burn it. Yep. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I set out some rules, right? Uh, I want a top-level heading with the name of the recipe. I want a second-level heading with the name description. I want one or more paragraphs describing your thing. I want a table of ingredients. I want a second-level heading instructions. I want a numbered list of instructions. And I'd like an image, please. It can be a clip art or an actual photograph of your popcorn. Uh, and if you want to make it fancier than that, by all means, I won't, you know, make it as fancy as you like. Uh, but for now, at least for this initial version, don't do anything CSS or JavaScript. Just keep it as pure HTML and see what it looks like. 
and then include the bootstrap stuff and then see how that changes things. Okay. And depending on how much weight you put on typography, it will change things very little or a lot. But as we go through the next few weeks, we will use everything we learn to turn this from a very, very plain recipe page into a well-laid-out, human-friendly, easy-to-read recipe that behaves appropriately on the teeniest of tiniest of phone screens and the largest of desktops. Ah. So, and to a large extent, to be honest, I'm going to be inspired by Paprika app because they do nice layouts. When you print stuff, landscape versus portrait, they do clever things. So I'll be, I'll be inspired by that quite a bit because you put me onto Paprika and I'm so happy you did. I, I just oh, adore that app. such a great app. And version three made it so much better because it now has Markdown support. <laughs> That's funny. I did not know that. Well, they don't call it Markdown, right? They say, oh, we can now do formatting if you type star, star, and then whatever you want, and then star, star, it'll be bold. Actually, I recognize that. That's a smart way to do it, right? Why, yeah, why they never mentioned the word Markdown. Why tell someone they're using a language? Why not just tell them, hey, try this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it works well. And they also have little buttons, so you can just select the text and click bold, and it'll put the stars around it for you. Uh, but it's, I like it. It made things a lot easier. And you can also link between recipes now, which is fantastic, because... I'm a oh. huge fan of marinades, so a lot of the times the same marinade is used in many dishes. Yeah. And instead of copying and pasting, and then I change my mind on whether to use one chili or two, I could just link. Oh. I can just say, use, you know, my lemon and, and black pepper marinade and then do this. So it's, it's great. I'm I really liking it. I know that. that app. I mean, at, at the risk of turning this into the paprika show, this would be our palate cleanser. Um, I, uh, the yeah. thing, Lindsay found a couple of cool things in there. As you're doing, you're following a recipe, after you put in the paprika into your uh, dish, mm-hmm. you tap on the ingredient and it puts a line through it so you can keep track of where you've been. That is cool. And I do that all the time. Do you know that in the instructions, if you tap on a paragraph, it highlights itself? Yes. Oh, yeah, I do that. And then uh, if you tap on a, uh, if it says simmer for five minutes, if you tap on that, it starts a timer for five minutes. Yep. Which is why it's important when you're writing your instructions to write it in such a way that Paprika understands. Paprika is pretty clever. Because if you say five min, Paprika knows what you mean. If you say five mins, Paprika knows what you mean. And if you say five minutes, Paprika knows what you mean. But I'm sure if you say, you know, for a moment, Paprika is not going to do anything with that. <laughs> it also uh, is super easy to say, okay, there's only two of us tonight instead of four. I put in a, t- you know, cut the recipe. I say two servings. Boom, everything's divided. That's, it's I love spectacular- that. And you can scale really, like you can scale arbitrarily. You can just say, give me two and a half portions. Yeah. And by the way, I don't ever write any of my own stuff, but I find it from websites and stuff. You can just uh, grab the URL and it goes, boom, and it's in there. It's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I'm a stickler for detail, so I always write my own. I, actually, no, the way I cook is I Google what I want. So I, the way it works is I go to the fruit and veg shop, and they have something I haven't cooked before. And I go, ooh, what's that? And he goes, that's a celeriac. And I go, great, thank you very much. I'll have a celeriac. And then I come home and I go, what the bleep do you do with a celeriac? So <laughs> I go to the Googles. Food? Yes. Oh, it's wonderful. Have you never eaten celeriac? I, is it a fruit, a vegetable, an animal? What is it? It looks like a turnip, smells like celery, and has a consistency when cooked that's not dissimilar to potato. It's often used as a starchy food instead of a sweet potato or a potato. Huh. Bizarre animal. You can mash it. You can roast it. You can do all sorts of cool things with it, as I recently discovered. So I will just go to the Googles and search for celeriac recipes, and I'll find five or six interesting recipes, and I'll combine them into one meta recipe, which I'll write myself. And then in the notes section in Paprika, I'll link the five inspirations so that for future reference, I know where I got the ideas from. Because generally speaking, you'll find they all agree that you roasted for 25 minutes. <laughs> and so when I see a bit of consensus, like, okay, 25 minutes it is. And then you know, one of them will say, do it with garlic. And another will say, do it with bay leaves. And I go, I don't like garlic. I do like garlic, but let's pretend I don't. And I'll say, actually, no, I'll do it with bay leaves and chilies or whatever. And I'll just sort of take the bits I like from all the recipes and make my own. Yeah, which doesn't really have anything to do with this show. But there you go. We both love paprika (laughs) for different reasons. And I think it was actually uh, Mark Pauly who turned me on to it. So it all goes around. And the other thing you can, the, the last thing I'll say is what I love doing is at the comfort of my computer where I have my Googles and everything, I write my recipes on a big screen with a big keyboard and then I pin the ones I'm going to cook today and I walk down the stairs and I pick up my iPad 
and a little spinny thing spins around for about three seconds and all of my pins appear in my sidebar on the iPad, in the kitchen, on the windowsill. And then I can just start cooking. Gotta love it. Gotta love the integration, right? Gotta love the integration. And it's gotten so much better, actually, with version 3. It's just the fact that it now synchronizes the pins. Oh, brilliant. Very cool. Well, this week in uh, in cooking... <laughs> Do you know I'm actually giving serious thought to starting Let's Talk Cooking? Really? Let's talk food. I am, but I don't have time. There aren't enough hours in the day, but... Okay, you're not allowed to do it until you bootstrap your website. (laughs) That seems like a fair deal, actually. Um, You know the the way you started the show because you were talking to people who didn't care? I'm finding myself doing that about food. Ah. Which is a danger sign that I need a podcast. (laughs) That's what causes it, right? Yeah. All right, well, we should probably close this out so people will know that it's done and we're not just rambling about our favorite recipe app. Indeed. So, as I say, there's your little challenge. We're going to take it with us for the next couple of weeks. And next time we're going to get stuck in, and we're actually going to start at the bottom. We're going to start with the utilities. Because even if you don't do anything else with Bootstrap, those utilities are still very, very convenient to start using. Yeah. So even if you don't do the fancy pants responsive design stuff, the utilities are still your friend because they just make life easier. They're utilities, says it in the name. So we're going to start there and then we're going to work our way, probably layout, utilities, layout, and then components and um, we're probably content and then components. So that ever since you told us not to use tables to align things on a web page, I have been mm-hmm. planning on getting rid of a couple of notable tables, but I always run into snags. I think I'll wait again until you teach us this. I'd give it a few weeks. We'll be there quite shortly. And Excellent. then you're going to be very, very happy because Yay. Bootstrap, Bootstrap just makes it sane. It has like a model that human beings can understand at a philosophical level. And that's the first step, right? Being able to have a model that makes sense in the human brain. And that's what's missing in the standard CSS stuff. Okay. Uh, And once you have the model, it it just flows from there. So you you will be happy, I promise. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, I think that's going to wrap us up. That does indeed. So until next time, happy computing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. This show is not supported by ads. It's supported by you. If you learn from the show, or even if you're just merely entertained by the shows, please consider supporting the show. If you go to podfeet.com, there's a big red button in the top banner that says support the show. If you click it, that will reveal to you several ways to contribute. You can pledge a monthly amount using Patreon. You can use the Amazon affiliate link for your country. You can make a one-time donation using PayPal, or you can record a listener review, which is an awesome way to contribute. You can always chat directly with me via Twitter at PodFeet or email me at allison at podfeet.com. You can join the conversation in Facebook by going to podfeet.com slash Facebook or on Google Plus at podfeet.com slash Google Plus. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.